This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. These words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tell us about the Antichrist, the one who really will appear, the one who will be charismatic, will be popular, and who will be diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, we know what end he will eventually meet, but what should we know about the coming of the Antichrist? We're going to tackle that today with Jeff Kinley. Jeff is founder and president of Main Thing Ministries, and he also hosts the Vintage Truth podcast, and he is the author of 32 books, including his latest. We're going to talk about it. It's called Interview with the Antichrist. His hour has come. Jeff, great to have you with us again. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet. Good to be with you again. Thank you. Now, you have written this book that I think is a very original way of warning Christians about this coming man of sin. Can you tell us a little bit about why you took this creative approach to discussing the Antichrist? Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the, the ideas behind this book was to help get into a, as many hands of Christians as possible. You know, people today love to read a narrative. Uh, there's a lot in the millennial generation that will read historical fiction, but won't sit down and, and read just the, the basic historical accounts. I find the same thing to be true in the Christian world, is a lot of people won't sit down and read a book about theology or biblical truth, the Bible prophecy, but they r- will read a story. So what I did, Janet, was I wrote this entire fiction novel about the Antichrist, his rise to, po- to power, what his kingdom will look like. And it's uh, it's not a che- cheesy Christian novel by any stretch of the imagination. Imagination. It's very uh, dark and real. But at the end of the book, what I did was sort of like bread trails. I, I lead them to the end of the book where I answer these 30 compelling questions about the Antichrist directly from Scripture. So it's really kind of a, a bridge building to this generation, but I think it's going to really hit the, the bullseye. Absolutely. I, I do think it's a, a really good way of reaching people who otherwise, as you say, wouldn't read a book on Bible prophecy, but absolutely need to know about the Antichrist. Let's talk a little bit about definitions, because I know you go into this in your book. We see throughout Scripture references to Antichrists, and we know there have been many Antichrists, small a, but then we differentiate the small a Antichrist antichrists from big A antichrist. What is the difference? How would you explain this to people who are a little confused about these words, antichrist versus antichrists? Yeah, well, the Bible tells us that there's going to be that lone individual that will wear that title of antichrist uh, in the last days. And yet John warns us all the way in 1 John chapter uh, 5 in the first century that the spirit of antichrist was alive even in his day. And so really there are these um, 
if you will, these precursors of the spirit of Antichrist that have been around since the first century. I think we'll see that ramping up even more to the end times. But there's a distinction between that one person who will embody all of those characteristics of the Antichrist, while others may have a, a portion of it here, a portion of it there. And I think that's one of the reason why, reasons why, Janet, that people have so misidentified this uh, nefarious figure in history, trying to make make uh, identification that it's going to be a certain president or it's you know a certain candidate or world leader. But Scripture makes it very clear that we won't know exactly who that person is until after the church has been raptured. Right. Although, as you point out, we have a lot in the Bible that gives us some clues about who this will be. Can you talk a little bit about Daniel in particular? Because you look at passages like in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, and there is a lot in there prophetically speaking forward about who the Antichrist will be and what he will do. What do you take from those passages in Daniel that are significant for Christians? to know about. Well, that's right. And, and Daniel does give us sort of a, a, caric- a caricature, rather, or a, a profile, a silhouette, if you will, of the Antichrist. He tells us in Daniel that he's going to be a very ambitious, a political figure. Uh, he's going to be a military demagogue. Uh, he's going to be a master orator and a self-promoter. Uh, he'll be very charming and cunning and deceptive, uh, but he'll also be a lawless character as well. Uh, he'll be arrogant, blaspheming. And, and what we see, Janet, when we kind of stand back and look at the, the profile of this person, what we see is a person on the surface that is very calm and very cunning, very charming. But underneath, like a rumbling volcano, this person is filled with hell itself and cannot wait to erupt upon the world scene and to demand that the world worship him. Right. What What is the stage that has to be set for the revealing of the Antichrist? What are some of the key events in Bible prophecy that will have to occur before he is revealed? Yeah, well, there, there's a couple of prerequisites that Scripture gives us. Uh, the major prerequisite prerequisite is for Israel to be reborn and to be living in the land again. And of course, that's already happened. May 14th, 1948, Israel's been in the land, more Jews today living in Israel than at any time in the last 20 centuries. But Scripture also tells us from that passage that, that you read earlier that that tribulation period or that day of the Lord, as Paul describes it, uh, will come after the restrainer has been removed from the planet in terms of the Holy Spirit's influence through the church. And that when that happens, that's going to free up the Antichrist to sort of come in and fill that void and to begin to reveal himself to the world as this promised Messiah, this world leader. I think it's very interesting, Janet, as you consider a post-rapture culture uh, from a global perspective and what's going to be happening, there's going to be a need for someone to step into that world and to bring a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense of security and safety, as Scripture says the Antichrist will. Right. And so there has to be Israel in the land, there has to be the rapture taking place, and then that's when the Antichrist will be revealed. So to bring order out of chaos, this very charming, charismatic figure will arise. And how how will he first come on the scene? What do we know about how he will earn the trust, as it were, of the world to take on that role? Yeah, the Bible tells us in Daniel 9 that he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And, of course, as we all know, that the Middle East is a powder keg, this volatile boiling pot that could really go off at any moment. And every president since, you know, Nixon and before us tried to bring peace to the Middle East. Well, the Antichrist will achieve that. And it says he'll sign a covenant for seven years 
And that, Janet, is officially what begins this seven-year countdown period called the Tribulation, not the rapture itself, but actually the signing of this covenant. So that covenant is going to be, that peace tree is going to be what really kickstarts this end-time scenario. Well, and some people have said that they expect the Antichrist will be Jewish. You don't necessarily take that view, though, do you? I don't, uh, simply because the Bible tells us in Revelation 13, 1, that he will arise out of the sea uh, of humanity. I think in, Gen- uh, in uh, Gen- excuse me, Revelation chapter 17, that talks about Gentile nations there. So I think he's going to come out of the Gentile nations, but also he's going to rule over a Gentile kingdom. You know, with the growing anti-Semitism that is in the world right now, and it's going to achieve a boiling point uh, in the tribulation period, I just don't see that person being a Jew. In fact, this person, the anti Christ is going to launch a second global holocaust against the Jewish people. So I don't think that would happen with a Jew. He would likely commit that. Plus, the the uh, thing that he does at the middle midpoint of tribulation is not something a Jew, I don't think, would do either. Yeah, that makes sense. But what about some of the thoughts that he could possibly be a Muslim? Because when you think about a peace treaty, the Muslims and the Jews, you know, are very much an infighting over there in the Middle East. What What is your take on that scenario? Well, the the Muslims have what their Messiah is called the Mahdi, and it's what's very eerily similar to the, the biblical Antichrist is that he they say he arrives on a white horse, that he kills Jews, that he reigns for seven years. So there is that parallel. The thing that kind of steers me away from saying that he would be a Muslim would be the fact that the Antichrist is actually going to claim to be God himself. Right. Uh, that is one of the tenets of Islam that uh, no true Muslim would ever do because they believe there's only one God in Allah. That would be the ultimate form of blasphemy for a Muslim. Well, that's a really good point. And I, what I really appreciate that you do in this book, Jeff, is you you take all these different passages and you have scripture interpreting scripture and you're looking at across the spectrum of scripture to make sure that what you're talking about here is backed up by what the word of God actually has to say. And of course, there are a lot of other things that come up regarding this person of the Antichrist. We don't know yet who he is. We don't yet know much about him. And yet the Bible does speak about him. And there's a lot to know and learn. Jeff Kinley is with us. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back talking about his book, Interview with the Antichrist. His hour has come. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else 
like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and Outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City. And take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 16th. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe. Starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters March 13th. More information is at IStillBelieveMovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking with Jeff Kinley. Jeff is founder and president of Main Thing Ministries and has written 32 books. Wow. Including his latest that we're discussing called Interview with the Antichrist. His hour has come. We were talking a little bit before we went to the break there, Jeff, about whether or not the Antichrist would be Jewish. Would he be a Muslim? You had some really good words to say. The fact that the Antichrist will claim to be God himself would be the ultimate blasphemy if he were to be a Muslim. What about ethnicity, though? Do we have any indication whatsoever about his potential nationality, uh, what part of the world he might come from, anything along those lines that we could be watching for? Well, I think we do. In fact, in Daniel 9, 26, Janet, the Bible tells us that that he will come from uh, the people of the prince who was to come. And, and if we look at the passage there, the context of that passage is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, we know that the people who destroyed Jerusalem were Roman. And it says the Antichrist will come from those people. So, from a very specific sort of a concentric circle, you could say the Antichrist could be everyone from a, a, a Roman Italian to extending to the whole Roman Empire and, and rising out of one of the nations or one of the territories that the Roman Empire ruled over. So it's hard to be very specific, but we do know he'll come from some sort of Roman Empire ancestry. Well, what about the possibility that there's Catholicism involved? I know that that's something, for example, that Martin Luther believed, going all the way back to the original documents that the Lutheran Church put together. They actually are, you know, the Antichrist is the Pope. I mean, to this day, you have Lutherans saying that. What about that potential? Well, and in fact, I received a message on Facebook uh, just this morning from a lady saying that a friend of hers had told her that the Holy Spirit has just announced that the Antichrist is the, the current Pope. <laughs> and the way I responded to, to that, uh, Janet, was simply to say, well, you know, number one, we don't know who the Antichrist is going to be. Right. I think, secondly, we tend to interpret uh, the Bible uh, proactively sometimes and, and not let God let his prophetic plan sort of play out. But the other thing is this, is that one of the things the Bible tells us about this Antichrist is that he will be a military leader. He'll be a military demagogue. In other words, he's going to have the clout and and the political stature to be able to command armies. Uh, I don't really see a pope doing that. Uh, The pope is really more of a peacenik uh, more than anybody else. And so it's not just that religious aspect. In fact, the Antichrist is going to have someone else to really kind of drive the religious narrative for him. So I think he's going to be a little bit more of a power-playing man, uh, more of a military man than he is a religious one. Yeah. Are you speaking of the false prophet there? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So we don't know for sure exactly where the Antichrist will come from, but we have a lot of indications uh, as far as his uh, intentions for the Jewish people. That's that's a very important aspect of this as well. Jeff, can you elaborate a little bit on what the Antichrist's goal is for the Jewish people? Because as you mentioned before, there will be this covenant signed and seven years of peace and all the rest. But what is the ultimate goal of the Antichrist concerning the Jewish people? Well, Scripture tells us, Janet, that in, in tribula- the tribulation period, there's going to be sort of a hinge upon which everything uh, switches, everything uh, swings. It's going to be that midpoint of the tribulation where the Antichrist is going to change the face that he's had for three and a half years and put on another face. And that face is a, a resolute desire to annihilate every single Jew on the planet. Hmm. Uh, he's going to go on a mission uh, to completely destroy everybody in the uh, the Israeli nation, and so and the reason why is because he hates the Jews because Satan hates the Jews, yep. and he knows that if he can destroy the Jewish people, then Jesus Christ will have no one to for whom to come back and to rescue mm. uh, at the second coming. Right. And so if he can prevent Christ from coming back, then his Antichrist can continue to reign on the earth, which is something that Satan has always wanted to do. He's always wanted to be God and to rule the world. Wow, that's really sobering. I, you know, you go to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, for example, where the Lord was asked, what are the signs of your coming? And, and he goes through all of these things. One of the things he talks about is a great apostasy. How does that fit into where we are now in church history and and where you think we might be on the timeline concerning the appearing of the Antichrist? Yeah, well, one of the things about Bible prophecy that we notice is that many prophecies are not, uh, they don't occur overnight, but rather they come into focus over time and it's sort of a ramping up to revelation, I like to say. And one of those prophecies is about a global apostasy and, and really a falling away completely uh, from the faith. I think we're seeing that right now in America. We're seeing it in the evangelical church, yep. uh, both doctrinally and morally. And uh, there's the doctrinal denials uh, that are going on right now. Whole denominations are beginning to really be pulled apart uh, because of some of these doctrinal issues, but also because of moral issues, uh, even denying uh, God's uh, ability to, to create the world. Uh, we have gay marriage, transgenderism, uh, pedophilia yep. is right on the horizon. Uh, these throuples that people are talking about with multiple uh, couples in a marriage. Uh, of course, you have abortion that, that many denominations are now getting behind. So I really think what's happening is we're mirroring the generation of Noah, which is also what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24. So all that to say is we're really seeing the precursors, or as Christ described it, the birth pangs of many of the things we see in Revelation happening. We're seeing those things begin to happen right now. I have been, I'm right on, on right down the line with you on all that, Jeff. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm seeing the same things. I have the same opinion as you do about the apostasy. And it's a little shocking, I think, for a lot of us who have grown up in the church and have been Christians for years and years and years saying, what is going on? It's We shouldn't be surprised, I guess, because we shouldn't act as if something strange were happening to us. We know trials will come and we know that the words of Jesus are true. And when he says there will become a great, you know, there will come a great falling away from the faith that we can see it. I guess for a lot of us, we never thought we would live to see it. I think that's part of the cognitive dissonance that a lot of us go through. Well, wait a minute. Are we really there, Lord? Is it really happening in our day? And you seem to be saying, yeah, we're, we're here probably. Yes, I am. And I think one of the reasons why we can say this with confidence, because as we look at the, the evangelical horizon right now, the landscape, rather, 
what we see, Janet, is the same thing that Paul saw in the first century, is that Christians are being misled, there are false teachers uh, among them, and there's a pandemic ignorance of Scripture in the Church today. And that's why Paul wrote that I don't want you to be uninformed. In fact, in that same passage that you quoted earlier, he says, after he talks about the end times and the Antichrist and the falling away, he says, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? Hmm. And that tells us that Paul's part of his curriculum, even in church planting and, and among these baby Christians, is to tell them about what God says about these prophetic events. So I think that ignorance, that prophetic ignorance that is in the church today sometimes opens us up uh, to fear, to anxiety, to speculation, sensationalism, and false teaching. Absolutely. What about the abomination of desolation that the Lord refers to in Matthew 24? That sometimes can throw people for a loop because they'll say, what is he really talking about when he's discussing that? And what does that have to do with the appearing of the Antichrist in the end times? Yeah, well, we, we, we see it way back in the, in the book of Daniel in, in chapter 9 that this abomination happens. But uh, we know that it's a, still a future event because Christ talks about it in Matthew chapter uh, 24. And what that specifically is, Janet, is that that midpoint of the seven-year seven tribulation, at three and a half years into it, the Antichrist is going to turn on the Jewish people, having given, given them the, the ability to rebuild their temple again, and sacrifices are being made. All of a sudden, he's going to come into that temple. He's going to declare himself to be God. He's going to invade the holy place, and then he's going to require everyone on the planet to either worship him or die. And that's what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation, where he desolates uh, and desecrates the temple there. And and really turns on the world itself. And that's when really things are going to ramp up and God's judgments are even going to, I think, become in more close proximity to one another. And so it's going to be really the key event, other than the second coming, it's going to be really the key event of the tribulation period. Wow. And you don't necessarily see the United States as even being part of the whole thing, do you? You you likely think there will be a decimation that occurs in this country. Yeah, it's sad to say, I, I don't think America will be the world power that she has been uh, for these many years. And I think part of that is because just of the sheer nature of how many Christians are going to vanish from this planet uh, and, and from America, Janet. And what happens is I think we're going to see that in every segment of our society. Mm. So it's not just this one little pocket of people over here that are gone, but it's going to be sort of like a cross-section of our country. And so that's going to affect us economically, militarily, socially, morally. And finally, those people who have, who have railed against Christians uh, for all these years will finally have their day. All the Christians who spoke up for morality, for spoke up for the unborn, who spoke up for traditional marriage, all those people will be gone. Uh, but it'll affect us because uh, of the disappearance of them. And so it's going to cause us, I think, to have to be uh, to have to be dependent upon perhaps other nations. Uh, perhaps we will be absorbed into a, a, another nation, national alliance or international alliance. It'll open us up for attack, uh, for whether nuclear attack or from attack from Islam. But it's going to really gut America, I think, in a post-rapture scenario. Wow. Will he be assassinated and then rise from the dead? What about those passages? Yeah, I think Scripture says that he will. And uh, I talk about this both in the fiction part of the book and I addressed it in the 30 questions uh, in the back. And uh, Revelation is very clear that uh, he is healed from a fatal wound. I think that's part of what Satan is going to use to help convince the world that he is indeed, quote-unquote, God. In fact, it tells us in, uh, in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, it says, with all deception and of wickedness, that God will descend a delusion 
on the world to believe the lie. Yes. And I think the lie he's referring to there is the lie that the Antichrist is God. And, and Scripture tells us this false prophet will accompany him with all powers and signs and wonders. That'll be very convincing. It's going to be an age of miracles once again, Janet, and the world's going to swoon over this man because he's going to come back from the dead and proclaim himself to be God. And people indeed will fall down and give him homage as deity. Right. But the word of God says clearly, as you just stated, that it's a delusion, that it's a lie. So there will still be evidence there from God himself that even if it's an age of miracles, it's an age of false miracles. Well, it will be, and, and yet people will believe the lie, just like they're believing the lies today. I mean, we're living in this alternate reality, it seems, where we're the only people looking around as Christians with discernment, saying, yeah. what, do you not see the lies that are going on? And people are just getting on the train, and they're just going on their merry way, as it says in the days of Noah. It's but it crazy. Is a great delusion. It is a great delusion. Well, the book is Interview with the Antichrist. Jeff Kinley with us. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being here. My pleasure, Janet, as always. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, a big day at the Supreme Court this week as the justices took up a very important case to determine whether or not a pro-life law in the state of Louisiana is constitutional. The case is called June Medical Services LLC v. Russo. And as the Washington Examiner points out, it concerns this common sense law, Unsafe Abortion Protection Act, which mandated that abortion providers had to maintain hospital admitting privileges at nearby facilities. Now, Liberty Council filed an amicus brief at the high court on behalf of Operation Rescue and the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference in this case, outlining, for example, that Operation Rescue uncovered numerous instances of grossly unsafe practices at several abortion facilities in the state of Louisiana. So we're going to get the details now from Roger Ganim, who is Liberty Council's Assistant Vice President of Legal Affairs. Welcome to you, Roger. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, tell listeners a little bit about this Louisiana Act 620, that's the other name for it, that is under scrutiny, what the issues are here, and why this case is so important. Well, this law really exposes the fraud of the pro-abortion movement. Uh, One of the, or three of the biggest lies that the pro-abortion movement will tell you is that abortion is health care, that pro-lifers are anti-science, and that pro-lifers want to harm women. Uh, Well, what this law does is it requires abortion facilities to meet the same standards as other health facilities that perform similar surgical services. Uh, it, re- it does this based on actual evidence of filthy and unsanitary abortion facilities, even in the state of Louisiana. Uh, and finally, all of this is for the purpose of protecting women. Uh, so it really exposes the, the lies of the pro-abortion movement and their vigorous opposition to this law uh, just really reveals uh, reveals that fraud, and, and it exposes that their purpose is death. Uh, only only when the purpose is death uh, can you justify a 
supposed healthcare facility uh, that's filthy, using dirty and rusty instruments uh, and things like that. So this law makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's all about protecting the lives and health of women, uh, and uh, we really hope that the Supreme Court will see that and, and hold that uh, that it should stay in, in effect. Well, absolutely. It's kind of ironic. Well, it's really ironic because the pro-aborts claim to care about women. It's all about women's rights, women's reproductive health, all the euphemisms that we hear from this lobby all the time. But as I understand it, all the doctors at outpatient surgical facilities have to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. The only exception had been abortion centers. So how in the world can you claim you're pro-woman and then say, we need to have more substandard practices at abortion clinics because we care so much about women? It's it's completely illogical. You're absolutely right. And uh, over and over again, the the lies of the abortion movement are exposed in lawsuits like this, where uh, protecting women is clearly the goal uh, based on evidence, uh, and yet the pro-abortion movement will insist that somehow we're trying to harm women by depriving them of access to what it, what it turns out to be dirty and unsafe facilities. In Louisiana, uh, the legislature wasn't basing this on hypotheticals. There's an actual clinic, the uh, the Delta Women's uh, Clinic in uh, in Louisiana, uh, that was a fan of Kermit Gosnell, who, who everyone will remember from the House of Horrors, um, case where, where he was killing viable babies, uh, his practices resulted in the death of at least one woman who came in there. Uh, well, there was a similar facility in Louisiana, the Delta facility, uh, where in 2011, a Liberty Council's client Operation Rescue brought to the attention of the state uh, Board of Health that um, that a woman uh, was injured because of the, the, the bad practices in there. She had to have a full hysterectomy as a result of, of going into that clinic. <laughs> um, and so the Louisiana, Louisiana legislature had examples of dirty, unsafe clinics within its own borders. Uh, and that's why they passed this law, to protect women uh, and to expose, again, this lie uh, that abortion is supposed to be health care and, uh, and that uh, the pro-life movement you know, doesn't care about women. Yeah, well, Operation Rescue has done terrific work on exposing what actually is going on inside these abortion clinics and the horrors that are going on every single day. It's, it's terrible. You know, one of the things that has also come up is this Hellerstedt decision that people People might remember the Supreme Court had struck down this Texas law in 2016. A lot of people are saying this Louisiana law is pretty much the same as the Texas law and are saying, well, the Supreme Court could potentially toss this case out because they'll say this has already basically been decided. But then it would raise the question, why would they take it up if they really felt that they were exactly alike? What are your thoughts on that, the differences between the Texas law and the Louisiana law and how that might affect the decision of the Supreme Court? That's a really good question, and uh, whenever we try to you know, read the tea leaves, so to speak, uh, of why the Supreme Court does what it does, um, it, it can create uh, you know, some speculation. But here we do have a different makeup on the court, and like you said, this court decided to take up this case. Uh, we also have uh, unique facts to Louisiana. Whatever the Texas legislature did and, and the reasons for it, uh, Louisiana is its own state, and right. it looked at its own evidence, and it made its own decision about what law it needed for its own citizens. Uh, and so in that sense, it is a new case that deserves uh, to be looked at uh, with fresh eyes. And 
uh, it's not beyond uh, possibility that this new makeup of the Supreme Court uh, will, will rule in favor of this Louisiana law and may even expressly say that the Texas decision, the prior decision, was, was wrong. Um, but whether or not they do that, they can uphold the Louisiana law regardless of, of what they, they did with Texas because Louisiana is its own state and, uh, and passed this law based on its own evidence and its own considerations. Yeah, good point. One of the things I had read about the oral arguments this week was the fact that the four liberals on the court were kind of against this idea that Louisiana was claiming the law serves these two purposes. It's a credentialing requirement, so you can kind of screen out the incompetent doctors who shouldn't be performing abortions in the first place. And also, the law was supposed to ensure that women who come in for abortions can go to hospitals if needed. These liberal justices, though, from what I've read, say that this particular law doesn't advance either of those things. Would you agree with that, or do you think that that's spurious? Uh, I think it's spurious. I think it's an example of what we've often called the abortion distortion and legal decisions. When whether you are in favor of of legal abortion or not, we can all agree that women uh, should be protected in health facilities and that anyone who holds themselves out as providing health care ought to be subjected to the same standards. Uh, There's no question that this law advances the safety of women by requiring healthcare professionals to be able to respond quickly if something goes wrong uh, in an abortion procedure. Uh, And so there's no way that anyone can say with a straight face that this doesn't advance the health of women and the safety of women. It absolutely does. The only thing that someone can say is, it exposes the the lie of the abortion movement, um, and that's why they don't like it. And uh, and I think the the four liberal justices on the court uh, are fully in that camp. Uh, they don't like it because it exposes what abortion is all about, uh, and it lets Americans see. Um, that this is something that we ought not accept as a society. Right, exactly. Of course, the pro-aborts will make the argument that the only reason you're imposing these standards on these abortion clinics is because you want to stop abortions. I mean, it's something that no pro-lifer would deny, but at the same time, on its face, how could they reasonably be against health and safety standards if they want women treated in a good way? I, I just don't see how they get around that particular argument. Uh, you're absolutely right. Just because a, a pro-lifer or a Christian thinks a law is a good idea doesn't mean that it that its only justification is someone's views on abortion or or on faith. Right. Um, the fact is, we can we can all agree. We should all agree that protecting the lives and health of women who seek abortions uh, should be a big deal. It should be something important to everyone. Uh, and to say that this law doesn't advance that. Uh, it's really denying reality. And again, I think it exposes the, uh, the lie of the abortion movement. Uh, and, and it should advance the cause of, of teaching society uh, that abortion should not only be illegal, but it should not even be tolerated uh, in, any, in any sense. Absolutely. When can we expect a decision in all likelihood from the high court on this case? Uh, I think the best guess would be uh, at the end of the current term in June, because that's usually when the court releases its big decisions. Um, But it's free to decide it sooner than that. So any time between now and the end of June, uh, we could see a decision. Uh, I would lean more towards the end of June uh, when the term ends, uh, just to that's consistent with prior practice. Very good. Well, we need to pray. Absolutely. And you can check out Liberty Council at lc.org. Roger Gannon with us. Thank you so much, Roger. Really appreciate your being here. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. 
This is Janet Mefford, here to tell you that preborn saves lives. He was like, you're not ready for another baby. And at that moment, I felt that I'm not going to be able to be a mom to this baby. So I came to the pregnancy clinic. She said they go to heartbeat. That changed my life just from that ultrasound picture. The Ministry of Preborn supports young moms in crisis with love and support and free ultrasounds. Because when a woman sees her baby on ultrasound, she's more likely to choose life. In fact, 8 out of 10 women will choose life when they see their babies on ultrasound. Would you please join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your sponsorship goes to saving babies. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Your love can save a life. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, it is very, very important that pro-life laws are upheld across the country, as we were just discussing with Roger Gannam at Liberty Council, this Louisiana pro-life law that has been so important to you know, babies across the state of Louisiana and important for women as far as their safety at abortion clinics. And I know, you know what, I say that and I want to make sure everybody understands. I am certainly not saying women's safety is the priority at abortion clinics. The most important thing is saving lives. That's the number one thing we're after. But it also is important that women are safe to the extent that they can be protected from further harm. We don't want women going in there and losing their lives because they were erring in having abortions. So, you know, this is a big, big case, but I want to play for you a little bit of this outside the Supreme Court audio that we got. This was from Mary Margaret Olihan from the D.C. News Foundation. She is the social issues reporter, and she did kind of a little woman on the street interview outside the Supreme Court this week. Some of this stuff is, I, I could not describe to you in the same way the problem that is going on in so many women's minds, as well as they themselves can demonstrate it to you. I want you to listen first, because this is Mary Margaret interviewing a pro-abortion woman who is just as, I don't know, just as intense as a pro-abort can possibly be, very hard-edged. She actually said to Mary Margaret that she thinks abortion is cool. Now, she explained that particular position in this cut. This is cut one. Because liberation is fantastic, and abortion allowed me to be the liberated woman that I am. Well, you know, and I'm asking you this straight, so you tell me your straight answers. We're not messing around here. 
A lot of people here are saying. Oh, I don't care what a lot of people are saying. Okay. So I won't engage in that conversation. Okay. Yeah, that's not what I'm here about. I'm not here about what they're saying. I'm here about what I'm saying, which is abortion is a human right. Abortion should remain legal. Abortion should have extra protections. Well, there's a sweet girl, huh? I mean, really? How, how do abortions liberate you? How does that liberate you? I suppose you could make the argument that I'm liberated because I'm no longer pregnant. But what about the downsides? You just had your baby murdered. Do you not think that there is any moral complicity in having your baby murdered? Do you not think there are any implications for your own health down the road? Do you not think there are any implications for your eternity down the road? Do you not think there are any implications for your life when you're in your old age and you're thinking back, I would have had a baby who would be grown up. I might be a grandma by now. You don't think those things are ever going to come back to haunt you? And maybe in some cases they won't, but you certainly can't call abortion a human right. It's absolutely backwards. Human right, you're killing humans in abortion. That's not a right. Thou shalt not murder. Now listen to how this pro-abort answers this question and then completely contradicts herself. Listen to this, cut two. Do you think that abortion clinics should be held to the same medical standards as hospitals? They already are. So, yes, absolutely. Oh, that's incorrect. They're not. They're not held to the same standards as hospitals because they're not hospitals. They are not providing all-inclusive care for a variety of illnesses and diseases, nor are they providing a variety of surgeries. They are providing invasive but not dangerous quick quality health care. Abortion procedures are safe. They are not a surgical procedure in the sense you are being cut open and you need a sterile surgical environment. You need a sterile environment just like any other health care provider and abortion clinics are held to the same standards as ambulatory health care centers, as any other health care provider that is doing a pap smear, as anything like that. So you're asking for extra regulations that will shut down clinics. There's no biological, medical, factual reason that a doctor needs admitting privileges if they're providing abortion care. If anything, we should be fighting for emergency room doctors to be trained in full-spectrum OBGYN care so they know how to treat the rare, but they do occur, complications from abortion. Oh, man, where do I even begin with that one? Did you note at the beginning how she completely contradicted herself? Well, we already have abortion clinics having the same ambulatory surgical standards as hospitals. And Mary Bargard says, no, that's not true. Yeah, and the reason they don't need them and they don't have them the same as hospitals is because X, Y, Z. Maybe if I talk really, really fast, nobody will notice that I actually contradicted myself. Well, I noticed and I'm sure anybody else who was listening to this noticed. And do you see how she shifted it? Oh, because you're not cutting anybody open, then all you need is a sterile environment. Yeah, it's kind of like taking out a splinter, right? It's just, it's non-invasive and it's totally safe. Is that why we had the woman who came into Kermit Gosnell's clinic in Philadelphia and never came out? How about all the other women who have been killed? How about the other women who have hemorrhaged and were rushed by ambulance out of their clinic? because they didn't have an abortionist who had hospital admitting privileges and they had to do something on the fly. Oh, you care about women, all right. Then Mary Margaret asks about the women who have died from abortion in the state of Louisiana. Listen to this one, cut three. What about the women in the Louisiana abortion clinics that died from the procedures going wrong? Or what about the woman in Louisiana whose uterus was mangled so she could no longer have babies after What about after the women abortion? that die after giving birth? You know that there's far more That's, women that are, It's true. Birth? What is Louisiana doing to protect those women? Okay, well, nice dodge. Changes the subject. I don't want to talk about the women who've had damaged uteruses. I don't want to talk about the women who have died. How about we talk about women who've died in childbirth? I mean, what is this, 1527? 
Most women make th- make it through childbirth just fine. In fact, I looked this up on the CDC website. About 700 women die every year in the United States as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. Now, you don't want to see any woman die because of childbirth, but there are certain things about, well, they say about half of those cases could be preventable. Fine, but that's a completely different question. And, and by the way, have we missed the biggest point of all? 61 million children have not made it out of abortion clinics alive. Does that not concern her? No, because you don't want to address the elephant in the room. Now, listen to this incredibly weird assertion and excuse. Again, kind of along the same lines. This is cut four. People are dying in childbirth. Children are dying in childbirth. It's true. It's a terrible thing. Okay, Mary Margaret missed a golden opportunity there. Children are dying in childbirth. Why do you care? This is what I would have said to her. Why do you care? Why does it matter if children die in childbirth? It doesn't matter to you if they die in abortions. Why would it matter to you if they die in childbirth? In that case, it's a natural occurrence, right? You didn't have anybody invasively going into your body in order to remove the body parts of your living child. That's a completely different scenario. This was something that occurred because something went wrong during the delivery process or a baby was born stillborn. You know, these sorts of things happen sometimes. Why do you care about children who are dying in childbirth? Because you certainly don't care if the children are murdered. You know, I, and, and God bless her, Mary Margaret had a lot to take on there. I tip my hat to her because she she kept a very, very nice persona through this entire interview. And I'm not so sure I would have kept as nice a persona as she did. But it's always good to be kind in the face of kind of wacko perspectives. Finally, this pro-abortion young woman is asked, can't we care both about women and children who die in abortion and also women who die in childbirth? Why can't we do both? This is where it gets insane. Listen to cut five. Uh, Well, what do the babies being aborted have to do with anything? If a woman has to have an abortion, clearly that was not a pregnancy that was going to continue. So why are we talking about those babies? You don't care about them? No, I absolutely don't. I care about women. I care about women's feelings and values on their own pregnancy. And I care about people being able to decide for themselves when abortion is right for them and when it isn't. I care about people being able to choose for themselves when life begins and when it doesn't. I don't care about your weird, very narrow definition of what a baby is and when life occurs. Weren't you a baby once? What does that have to do with anything? I don't know. Are you going to have babies someday? I'm not going to have children. I don't want to have children. I know that's something that very confuses y'all, but there are some people that truly do not decide to have children in this world. That's why I've had three abortions, because I don't want to have children. Oh, it just breaks your heart. There's your answer. That's, that's the reason for the intensity. That's the reason for all the defensiveness. She's had three abortions. And sadly, this is what is driving a lot of these young women to act so over the top about abortion and so irrational. Who in the world can say it should be up to the woman to choose for herself when life begins? That wasn't the original argument at Roe v. Wade. Go back and read the transcripts of those arguments that took place. And Dovey Bolton, you should decide for yourself when life begins. Who are you, God? You don't decide for yourself when life begins. That's not how it works. And if you extrapolate that out into normal society, boy, if we can go about deciding when life begins, maybe you could just declare your five-year-old her, her life hasn't begun yet and she's really expensive and kind of a pain in the neck and you don't want her begging for juice all the time. So maybe you could get rid of her too. And then you can just tell the cops, I was just deciding when her life began. That's all. It's evil. It's wicked. 
it's just demonic when it comes down to it. And it's all tied, it would seem, at least in part, to her own personal pain, her own personal experience, and her own sin. And that's the sad part. We need to pray for these women. They're lost. They are utterly lost and they are blind and they are mired in contradictions that they can't possibly work their way out of. They need the Lord. That's why I'm so grateful for the pro-lifers who are sharing the gospel, wonderful ministries like our friends at Preborn. So important. That work is so important to cut through all of this propaganda and say life matters because God created life. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford Today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com.